We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Today, friends, we are here to talk about how performance tasks can improve your students' learning outcomes in math. And we are really fortunate today to have Jay McTie here today. We also have Jay Meadows here today. And I, Brendan Scribner, will be in the background, in the chat, uh, moderating this brilliant discussion between Jay and Jay. Our hosts today, uh, Jay Meadows of Exemplars Mathematics, as I said, in Underhill, Vermont, is graciously uh, sponsoring our program today. And if you would like information about performance tasks and problem solving or professional development for your math classrooms, you can scan this code to access the material. We're going to be talking today about problem solving and performance tasks. And Jay McTie is one of the uh, leading gurus uh, about of performance tasks. And at Exemplars, we have over a thousand of those tasks. And we hope to have you experience or check those out uh, as a result of this great conversation with Jay and Jay. And without further ado, as moderator, I'm going back into the shadows and I'm handing it over to Jay Meadows, CEO. Awesome. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Jay. Jay, this is a, an enormous honor for me to, to meet with you. I've been reading your books for over 20 years now. Um, and you are good friends with the founder of Exemplars. So your name has been part of our dinner conversations for over 20 years. So uh, we've been getting to spend some time together the last few months. So it's been super fun for me to talk about this with you directly. So for those who aren't as familiar with Jay McTie, you've written 18 books and 50 chapters of, of other books. So you've been incredibly prolific in, in talking about performance assessments and how students learn. So Jay, the first thing I'd like to do is let's give our audience a definition of performance tasks and performance assessment. Let's just sort of set a foundation. What do you, how would you describe what they are? Well, for me, the name is suggestive. The, to me, a performance task is any learning activity and or assessment that asks students to perform with their learning. So for me, a performance task involves the students doing something, more specifically applying their learning to some situation. Uh, and a performance task typically yields a tangible product. Uh, it may be a written explanation of their work. It may be uh, a piece of writing. It may be a visual representation or an actual performance like we might have in physical education or might be delivering a TED talk. So um, summary, a performance test is students performing with their learning. Now, one, one point I, I like to share with you and the, and the listeners or viewers, for much of my career, I referred to these as performance assessment tasks. But I'd say over the last decade, I've, I've been more careful and I've, I've determined or decided to drop the assessment. So I'm just mm -hmm. calling them performance tasks. And, and here's why. I find that, that often when teachers hear the word assessment, it, they, there's sort of the inclination or the tendency to say, oh, that's something we do at the end of teaching to get a grade. And while we can certainly use performance tasks as summative assessments, I really would like to convey the idea that a rich performance task, be it in mathematics or other subjects, can be more than just something you do at the end to get a grade. I like to think of the performance task as what you're teaching for. In other words, if it's a good task, it's what you want students to be able to do with their learning. And like the game in athletics or the play in theater, if the learners know that in three weeks, four weeks, they're gonna be doing this task, if the task is known, at least in general, I think it can help their learning because they're thinking about and learning the elements needed to perform. So that's a long way of saying, I think it's worthy to blur the lines between performance tasks as rich learning experiences, as learning goals in themselves, and of course we can assess what students do on the task, and we should. I love that distinction, Jay, because 
to, to place them purely as assessments, then we have to score them and we have to really sort of evaluate them, but they're so powerful as just a learning opportunity for our students. So I love the way you're sort of rebranding re almost um, sort of the intention. Jay, I know this story, which I find fascinating. Why did you invent or sort of begin to really put forward the performance tasks, goals 40 years ago? What was sort of your driving thinking way back when? Well, in my early years in education, very early in my career, in fact, I got involved in so-called gifted education, working with very able students. Now, not all of them were good game players. They didn't play the school game necessarily, but they were very smart. And in those early years, and this is the, the mid-70s, mid-80s, um, the focus in gifted education was on, quote, developing and, and fostering higher order thinking skills, which included problem solving. Um, engaging students in more authentic applications, um, uh, involving them in some cases in independent study type work, and generally really engaging students in thinking and applying their learning. After quite a few years in that realm, I, I became increasingly convinced that the things that were happening in gifted ed for the top you know, 5% of students really need to be expanded. And that coincided, in fact, with the evolution in, in psychology from a behavioral approach to learning to more of a cognitive and constructivist view, where it's really important for students to actively, I like to call it, make meaning. So rather than just sitting back and being fed information and, you know, kind of being a passive recipient, um, engaging students actively and making sense of things and, and problem solving. Um, is a big part of, of what that is. So my own professional uh, career and thinking has evolved to the point that I think this is important for all students, this type of learning. Mm -hmm. Jay, that conversation of meaning making, I'm hearing more educators talk about it. Um, the value of giving kids this, the opportunity, not just to learn procedures, but to actually understand when am I gonna use this? flexibly adjust it to different situations that seems um seems more and more part of the conversation talk to me about this idea of applying our math skills what does that mean and why is that important to to, to our students in the 21st century that's a, it's a great question and the slide on the screen at least the one i'm seeing is called goals for modern learning um really is is one way of characterizing um or responding to your question. My longtime colleague and friend, Grant Wiggins, in our work with the Understanding by Design framework, proposed that we can think about three types of learning goals, categorically speaking. Now, none of these are new, but they are distinct. And on the screen, I, I believe that's showing, they're, just, they're listed. On the left side, we have what we call acquisition goals. Namely, what knowledge, and skills should students acquire when they're learning new material? Well, this is familiar territory. State standards and provincial outcomes specify um, what students should know and do. And by the way, when I talk about knowledge, I'm talking about uh, factual knowledge and basic concepts. But then if you look at the goal uh, category on the right side, I refer to these as understanding goals. Understanding is not simply remembering a fact, nor is it a skill. It's a larger transferable idea in the form of a concept or a process. Um, and problem solving and mathematical reasoning, for example, fall into this category. Um, these are abstract ideas and kids need to come to understand what does a good problem solver do or what does sound mathematical reasoning uh, look and sound like. At the bottom, we have what I think is the ultimate goal of a modern education, and that is transfer. The ability of a student to take what's been learned and effectively apply that to something new. And my reading of mass standards is that this is exactly what the mass standards are calling for. They're not saying that students should memorize algorithms so they can plug in numbers and get a simple answer to an exercise. The mass standards are saying, we need to engage students in problem solving, 
and learning the processes of mathematics, the strategies of effective reasoning, the ability to communicate mathematically. And while, yes, we need basic skills and basic knowledge to do that, the basics to me are the floor, not the ceiling of a modern education. So to summarize, I propose that as we're teaching mathematics or any subject, we should be focusing on what we want students to be able to do with their learning, i.e. transfer. And you can't transfer if you don't understand. Um, and that those rise above just covering the basics. Jay, I can remember when I was early in my teaching career, I had this assumption that if I did a really good job teaching the content, that my students would leave the classroom and be able to apply it, right? My job was simply, they needed to know how to multiply with fractions and the application would kind of sort itself out. And I started using some rich problem solving and I realized they're not able to sort of extrapolate away from the algorithm to, oh, this is the multiplication of fraction moment. I need to find the fraction of something. And so I began to practice those skills with my students. And I watched with practice, they quickly became much better at the application and the transfer. Mm -hmm. But it was that intentional um, opportunity to practice it and to think about it and to discuss it and talk about it that they needed desperately if they, if they were actually going to transfer those skills. Yeah, I think that's just right. If I can do a little riff on that, and I'm going to see if my, yeah, if uh, the slide changed, um, on the screen you see a slide titled The Game Versus Practice. And and this is what I I think this is a useful analogy, but but you and the viewers can be the judge. Think of our goals in education as like the coach's goal in athletics. You take the the players you have, the, the students you have, but you're working toward having them be able to play the game, right? And if you think about it, the game in athletics is an authentic performance. The players have to take everything they've learned in practice and put it on the field or on the court or on the ice. If we think about our goals in mathematics or any subject, not as simply covering lots of content, hoping it sticks, but think about the performances we want kids to be able to do, i.e. the performance tasks that are important and aligned to our goals, um, then we plan backward from the game like coaches do. and and our and the equivalent of practice for teachers, of course, are our lessons. What do coaches do in practice to prepare for the game? Authentic performance. They teach the knowledge that's needed. You can't play the game if you don't know the rules. They develop the skills necessary for the game, both individual and, and team skills. But they also help to develop game strategy, which I would call understanding. Because we've probably all seen examples of teams that might be more athletic or, or more skilled who, who don't win the game because the other team plays smart and strategic. So that's a long way of saying whether it's athletics or teaching mathematics, what we do in practice, our lessons are developing knowledge, skills, and understandings strategy. But there's one more part to the analogy that I find sometimes teachers can miss, and it kind of goes back to your story. I've worked with teachers who have well-developed, rich tasks, like exemplars math tasks, in fact, at the end in mind, and they teach kids the component parts. But the first time the students has seen anything like the authentic task is when it's revealed to them. And sometimes they don't know what to do. Now, think about the athletic analogy. That would be like the coach Going through the playbook, play-by-play play in practice, the first time students had ever seen the game was when they're now on the field playing it. So the coaches do one more important thing in preparation for the game, right? They have scrimmages. A scrimmage is essentially a formative assessment in practice that replicates game-like conditions. The difference is in practice, you get feedback and you get to retry and, and work on things. But when it comes to the game, the players have to do it on their own. They have to transfer everything from practice to the game. So I think it's an apt analogy. And um, I'll just leave it at that. That's my uh, story, and I'm sticking to it. Jay, I love that analogy. And I'll, I'll tell a personal story quickly. I have been 
reading about you and learning about you for many, many years, one of my absolute favorite things on earth to do is coach soccer. And mm. I have coached many, many, many years of soccer. Mm-hmm. And early in my middle school teaching career, coaching soccer, I was walking home from practice, walking back inside to my classroom to prepare for tomorrow's math lesson. And I'm thinking about Jay McTie and the soccer analogy and the idea of skills versus versus game in my math class. Uh, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 for myself, was like, you know, I've got to give my kids some some real world practice. And, you know, like and like you were talking about and it. For some reason, it was that walk back inside because I had just broken down the game into some skills, some foot skills and then some team skills and then some strategy. And it was like, for some reason, the light bulbs all came together uh, one day. So it, it's it's fun to sort of reminisce about coaching soccer with you. So, yeah. All right. So we've talked about the value of performance tasks. They're really an opportunity to transfer our math concepts. So could you unpack for us what a good performance task looks like? Let's let's sort of think about what should teachers be looking for? What should they be building? Unpack a good performance task in math for us. So a good performance task in mathematics, or in fact, in any uh, subject area, to me has a, a, a set of, of a salient and important features or characteristics. The first of which, the task should be well aligned to important goals. So we're not just doing a fun activity. It's gotta be goal oriented and we need to be clear about the goals. Um, And for me, the goal is not, can kids remember a number fact? The goals are tied to conceptual understanding and the ability to apply their mathematics, whatever the particular content of mathematics is uh, being uh, aligned. So aligned it to important goals. Secondly, to me, the essence of a performance task should be giving us evidence of understanding and the student's ability to apply their learning effectively, otherwise known as transfer. Um, And so the task involves application. Thirdly, a third characteristic is the task should involve not only application, but explanation. It's those two twin processes that should be embedded in the task. Now, this isn't new. Good math tasks will present students with a problem or a a situation for application. But then, invariably, a good math task will ask um, the student to show their reasoning, justify their conclusion, um, show a proof, support their argument. It's the twin processes of application and explanation that makes a task rich and also provides evidence of understanding if we're using it as an assessment. A couple of other characteristics which are suggested by the acronym on the screen. To me, as much as possible, a good performance task should be, quote, authentic, i.e., it should set up a situation that either um, literally or in a simulated way reflects how people beyond the classroom, outside in the, quote, real world, use mathematics knowledge and skills. This sets up relevance for the student. uh, And if they really understand, they can apply their learning to a real, real contextualized, genuine situation. A part of authenticity then in tasks is that there's a goal for the student and a role for the student and a target audience. Now, not everything we do in class in school can be truly authentic, but I do think in many cases, good performance tasks can, if not realistically, at least in a simulated way, set up realistic situations. You know, imagine you're a surveyor or a builder of roof angles for geometry, et cetera, uh, and your audience is the home builder or the uh, the building inspector who has to see a certain pitch of roof angles in certain parts of the country, et cetera. Um, finally, a good performance task will yield a tangible product and or a performance, and those should be well aligned to the goals. In other words, if kids are doing a, a, a 3D display or a, or a graphic display, um, they, it should be giving us evidence of the goal that we're working toward. 
a few other characteristics. In addition to the task, there should be an identified set of criteria and or a rubric so that everyone, the teacher, but also the students are clear about what constitutes good performance. Yeah, on the screen is an example of, of such a rubric. Um, finally, good performance tasks can often, but not always, uh, bring in a, a natural and purposeful use of technology. Some performance tasks also can integrate more than one subject area. And if you think about it, the more authentic the context, the more likely it will be that the task might in fact bring in another subject or area or two even along with the mathematics. Because as we know, in the world outside of school, most real issues and problems don't fall neatly in a single subject area silo. They tend to be naturally interdisciplinary if they're truly authentic. So those are, those are main features for me of what makes a good performance task. Now, Jay, if, one of the, oh, if I can rip for one more second, I'm going to go yes, to this slide. Um, because I've worked with performance tasks for, for dozens of years now, um, I have a set of, of criteria for to, to answer your question, what makes a good performance task? And I call these review criteria, and they can be used in a couple of ways. If you as a teacher already have performance tasks that you're using, or they're available in a textbook series, for instance, um, or you find some on the internet, you can, and I believe should review them against these criteria. The criteria essentially describe or list what I described verbally. Um, because I have seen over the years, things that people call performance tasks, where the kids are doing something, you know, it's hands-on and maybe they're creating something, but the, the juice isn't always worth the squeeze. You know, mm -hmm. some tasks are low level. Kids might make something like a popsicle stick something, but it's not clear what, what the goals are, except they're making something, it's, you know, and this is not an art project, this is a math uh, task. So um, these criteria describe qualities of good, good tasks. Without sounding like I'm giving uh, an over <laughs> an unauthorized plug, I can say for the viewers that the exemplars tasks have these qualities. And so working from well-developed tasks is a really important starting place and not trying to create your own because it's hard to do these well. But if you are creating your own, these are the qualities or the criteria that we recommend that you um, consider. Thank you, Jay. Jay, one of the things you said that I think distinguishes performance tasks from things that teachers are doing in their classroom, there's a lot of conversation around problem solving, which I think is vital for our students, this idea of the application of, of math concepts. What makes performance tasks special and powerful for me is that idea you described as the justification and the explanation. I think of this, I call this the solution, right? In a good performance task, students work hard through multiple steps, multiple math concepts to arrive at an answer. But in a performance task, that's half the journey. The second half of the journey is, okay, now I have to explain this and justify this to an audience, right? How do I, in mathematics, use my representations to, to sort of support my, where I've gotten as an answer? How do I use my vocabulary and my reasoning? And how do I articulate that in a, a understandable way? How do I use my calculations, which are vital in mathematics to, to support where my answer got us to? Um, but that, that power I have found of that written solution um, seems to create a permanence of the, of the thinking that the students did. It's the meaning making that students get after they're done with the calculations. Um, what, what do you think about the power of that solution or that, that explanation? Yeah, uh, well said, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, here's an interesting note. Because, as I mentioned, I had worked with very bright students for a number of years, and I remember always pressing, you know, even very bright students in mathematics to show their work, explain their reasoning. 
And I had some kids that would just almost refuse to do that. And quite frankly, I could understand their point. They were so good at at doing this mentally and they did it so quickly, sometimes eerily so. And they said, why do I have to, you know, go back and kind of in a tedious way, show you what I did? Cause, cause I did it fast in my head and my answer was right. And I was, I was uh, kind of debating whether I should press them on show their reasoning and explain or not. Cause they were just, some of these kids were brilliant. And I remember talking to one of my heroes, um, in this profession, Dr. David Perkins from Harvard. And I asked him his opinion on that, and he was unequivocal. He agreed with your point. He said, you know, for very bright students, it's even more important to press them to be able to articulate their reasoning, because he said they might get it quickly when they're in fifth grade or ninth grade. But at some point, if they pursue mathematics, they're going to be getting into much more challenging realms. They're going to be with other very bright students. And someplace in time, they're going to hit something that they don't know how to, what to do. They're going to get stuck and they're, they need to be able to fall back on an established set of reasoning processes and be able to really show their work. So that's a long way of saying I agree with, with your description of the value and need to press students to show their work, explain their reasoning, uh, make their argument. Okay, Jay, let's, let's, let's assume teachers are convinced and that they're excited to bring performance assessments into their, their schools and their classroom. They're already super busy. So where does this fit? Because a good performance task can take a full class period, sometimes two class periods. Or more. Mm-hmm. more. So how do, I, how do I, if I'm a teacher who wanted, wants to do some of this, justify uh, the use of that much time on these tasks. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I'm going to go back to the game analogy in in athletics uh, to start, and um, I'm going to go back to that slide. In fact, I think it was 16, okay. and and ask it as a question: What are our goals in teaching mathematics? What are the standards calling for? in a rich mathematical education. So that's that's question one, somewhat rhetorical. The reality, as we know, is that in almost every discipline, including mathematics, there's often too much content jammed into state standards or packed into textbooks. Some of the viewers or listeners will be aware of Bob Marzano's classic finding from his research in which he concluded that the number one factor impacting learning and achievement at the school and district levels, not classroom, school and district levels, is a, quote, guaranteed and viable curriculum delivered to all students. Why do you think Marzano used the word viable in his findings? Well, I know because I've known Bob for 35 years. He chose the word viable to make the following point. If there's too much content and not enough time, you don't have a viable curriculum. In fact, mm-hmm. at best, or maybe at worst, teachers can be racing through trying to cover everything, particularly if they have a pacing guide. But what if the kids don't understand it? So what value is it to cover lots of stuff if the kids don't understand it and can't apply it? You've never heard a coach say, oh, you know, Jay, I don't have time for those games. They take all afternoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can I ever cover my playbook? But you hear teachers say somewhat the, the equivalent. Oh, that task could take two days. I, I can't give up that much time. With all due respect, I'm going to say, no, our job is not covering the playbook or marching through every single standard one at a time and testing in isolation. Our job is to prepare students to be able to apply their learning or to transfer. And to do that, they need understanding. And they need time to make sense of the content, to learn problem-solving strategies, to have scrimmages where they're tackling messy problems and the teacher's giving them feedback and, and helping them. That's the preparation for the game, which, again, is what the standards are calling for. Can we help students be prepared to apply their learning to real-life challenges in mathematics and others? 
Now, having having gone on that little uh, that soapbox, so what does that mean, though, uh, particularly for teachers who may not be doing this at the beginning? My uh, my mantra is the following: Think big. If you see the value in what we're discussing here, or you recognize it, think if you're a teacher, you know, in two or three years, I would really love to build my math curriculum and what I teach around a set of rich tasks tied to my, my uh, math goals. So think big, but start small. Everyone I know is overloaded with stuff. And we can't just snap our fingers and change practice if we're not already doing this. So think big, but start small. Maybe just start with one or two units that you know well and for which you either have a good task or you can get one, like from exemplars, and try it out. And also try the teaching that's necessary to prepare kids for the task and, and see how they do. So think big, but start small. Work with a colleague or two if possible. And the third part of the aphorism is work smarter. It's really hard, in my experience, to develop good, rich, manageable tasks. If you, if you love doing it, go for it. But rather, find good ones and use them, at least at the start. And that's where Exemplars offers an extraordinary uh, resource. So uh, I'm an unapologetic uh, advocate of using great resources like Exemplars. Thank you, Jay. Um, so that's my long answer. Um, so many times with performance tasks, educators ask the question of how often, how many, um, how many tasks in a school year, a month. What are your thoughts? Yeah, another great question. My ideal answer, and it's actually reflective of or reflected in the Understanding by Design framework that I wrote, worked on with Grant Wiggins for many years, is that in every major unit, not, not an introductory unit per se, but every major unit, I think there should be at least one performance task embedded in the unit. But as I mentioned a moment ago, that may not be the appropriate starting place if teachers don't already have good tasks or have never taught this way before. But ideally, I would say we should have at least one rich performance task in every major unit. And again, the way of thinking about it is to answer this question. For the mathematics I'm teaching in this particular unit, what do I want students to be able to do with that learning in an authentic application, problem-solving way? And that would be essentially the task at the end. Um, and then I'm going to plan backward from the demands of that task to teach and prepare students for it, including a scrimmage, including formative assessment with feedback as a preparatory move. Beautiful. And with that formative, I'm really thinking about some of those formative tasks. And I, I've used exemplars task in my classroom for 24 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that I really found useful was using a task collaboratively with students, mm -hmm. having um, side by side, one students with manipulatives, the other describing um, lots of turn and learn, turn and talk. Uh, find someone who had a different strategy that that you had. Um, how how do you feel about performance tasks being used as a stu for student collaboration and discourse? Another another great question. Um, I'll think about it in, in a couple of ways. When I talked earlier about a scrimmage as preparatory for the game. If you think about mathematics and you have a rich, authentic task that you hopefully want that you want students to be able to perform, um, a, a scrimmage could take several forms. It could take the form of presenting students with a similar kind of task, but the teacher is going to guide the students through it, even doing think alouds to say, you know, I'm a little stuck here, but here's a here's a strategy or a a heuristic I'm going to try. Let's see how that works. So that's one one version of a scrimmage that teachers modeling and guiding. Another version is just what you said. Let's have the kids work in teams and share their reasoning, show their representations, uh, unpack the problem or the task, um, and let the kids collaborate on it. Um, at some point in time, if you want to see if kids 
really understand and can apply things on their own, the final performance task in a unit may be done individually, particularly if it's an assessment. But preparing for them is absolutely in line with, with what you described. In fact, I would say that's the essence of good math teaching, engaging students individually and especially collectively in talking, sharing their reasoning, uh, trying strategies, etc. Peter Lilliedahl has taught us if we want to give our kids, get our kids to talk, we have to give them something to talk about. And I have found a good, rich performance task is sort of a great catalyst for conversations because there's different steps involved. There's different ways to solve a good performance task. So it really is a terrific uh, foundation for, for some great conversations. Okay, Jay, you've been teaching performance tasks for years. What are some of the secrets about getting schools to adopt performance tasks and use them in their schools uh, with success? What are, what are a few of the secrets? So I'm going to give you my um, ideal thoughts or recommendations on what this can and should be. But this is not just a, a pipe dream. I, I've worked with schools and districts that are doing this or have done this and continue to. The first thing, I actually think that this has to be um, approached as a systems way of thinking. Now, obviously, individual teachers can do a lot in their classrooms to support problem-based learning and, and the use of such tasks. But to really get the power across the grades, which by the way, is what guaranteed and viable curriculum means. It's not what individual teachers do, it's a system in which they work. I propose the following, that as part of our math curriculum, the district or the school or the department over time builds in rich performance tasks. And I said to Brendan, ideally one for every major unit. Um, and again, exemplars offers essentially a resource for doing that um, without having to invent it. So you need good, rich tasks. You also need to have agreed upon, well-developed rubrics. And by the way, for rubrics, I generally recommend um, maybe a, an agreed upon rubric for problem solving for high school level, maybe a slightly simplified version for middle school, and then simpler going down. And exemplars has those, in fact. Um, different kind of levels of rubrics. I wouldn't have a different rubric for every grade level, but for grade clusters, that makes sense. So you need well-developed tasks, clear and agreed upon rubrics. But there's a third piece that I think is really powerful um, at, at the systems level, and that is setting up both opportunities for and expectations for teachers to at least occasionally meet together in grade level or department teams to look at student work on those tasks. Um, and any of you that work in schools or districts that have uh, PLCs, professional learning communities, you've already got that structure set up. If you don't, I have found it to be really powerful. And, and permit me to show a couple of ideas for how, how teacher teams can and should look at student work. I'm gonna to go to uh, slide 17. So here's what's needed to get this component going. There needs to be agreed upon or common assignments, in this case problems, or performance tasks. Um, and again, I'm proposing that those be built into the curriculum if they're not already. Secondly, as the second little box suggests, agreed upon evaluative criteria or rubrics. And then the third leg of this stool is time to meet in teams. And in the teams, we're doing going to do a couple of things. We're going to look together at student work, i.e. their explanations, their reasoning, their representations in response to a rich, authentic problem. And there are structured protocols, I think, as you may know, for looking at student work. The purpose of this is not, however, just scoring. That's one purpose. We want to make sure that teachers are applying the rubric in consistent ways as they look at student work. But a second part of that PLC process is to, if you don't already have them, to select anchors 
or examples of student performance leveled or indexed to the levels of the rubric. So here are three examples of excellent student responses that show reasoning, accurate computation, effective use of mathematical language. Here are some that are good, but not perfect. Here are some that have flaws, et cetera, so that the rubric is now anchored by tangible examples, of, I call them anchors, uh, that illustrate different levels of performance in mathematics. Again, an un, uh, unrequired plug for exemplars. And quite honestly, the thing that drew me to exemplars some, what, 25 years ago was the examples that you provided. Not just a, a rich task and a rubric, but it, a multiple examples of student work with annotations as to why these three are really excellent, why these are good but could be better, and why these are weak and flawed, and here's what you can do to help get them better. Um, on the screen is a picture of a PLC team doing just this, looking at student work as a team, identifying strengths, selecting examples. And the final part of this, which I, I think is the, the, the capstone, is we're not just scoring or evaluating student performance or even just selecting examples. We're now looking at the patterns that student work reveals and as a team of teachers, we're going to identify specific actions that we can take to work on the, the weaker areas. The example on the screen is an example of a worksheet from such a PLC type team. And if you can read the small type, notice how specific the analysis of some of the weak areas were at the top. And even more, Look how specific the suggestions are that the teacher team came up with for how are we gonna to try to improve the areas that we see um, are somewhat weak. So to me, this is at the heart of school improvement, right? Not waiting for a once a year test score report from the state to tell us, quote, how we're doing, but a more regular look at student work on rich tasks that embody our most important goals. And as a team, analyzing that work, identifying areas of strength and weakness, and targeting the weak areas. Last part of my little ramble here, go back to athletics. This is exactly what coaches do. My friends who coach high school football, and I've known quite a few of them, will invariably get together on Saturday or Sunday, and they'll, they'll look at game film from Friday or Saturday's game. They'll analyze strengths and weaknesses of the team's performance, and they'll plan next week's practices to address weak areas. That's a coach's PLC, and we can and should replicate that in schools. So it's a long answer, but I think these are important elements in your question. Jay, you've, you've talked about something that <clears throat> is somewhat unique to your work and to performance tasks, is this idea of a rubric. I think in, in language arts and some social studies, rubrics are fairly common, but you're really advocating the use of rubrics in mathematics. And so I want to put up sort of the rubric you provided. How which, do you, which is essentially based on exemplars, by the way. Well, let's do this. I can put mine up. Yeah. So unpack for us the value of the rubric what is it supposed to do for teachers in your mind i'm going to i'm going to answer it in two ways what does it do for teachers and what can it do for students great for teachers the the most immediate application may be oh i'm going to use that to grade or score student work and yes that's in fact one of its purposes if it's a well developed rubric it should specify the salient qualities or traits that we look for in student work. So when we're reviewing or evaluating student work, we have a gauge. But I think a rubric can do two other things. Think about the rubric should be our teaching targets, right? If the rubric contains the qualities we're looking for in student work, these are the things we wanna be teaching. So rather than think of a rubric as something, again, you do at the end to get a grade, Think of it as my teaching 
and learning targets are getting you as students better at these qualities. Uh, the third thing that a good rubric should do is remind us of the goals that we're mm -hmm. teaching toward if the rubric is sound. My colleague Grant Wiggins, um, who is very smart, and uh, he, he changed my thinking early on when I was initially working with him because I had been doing a lot of work with performance tasks. Um, but in general, the process I used was I would, you know, either myself or a team, we would develop a task, then we would generate the rubric for that task. And Grant said, no, no, you don't want to do it that way. The rubric is inherently derived from the goals. And he said, if you give me the goals or the standards, I should be able to create a sound rubric, irrespective of what kind of task you're going to couple to that. And at first it didn't strike me. I said, no, you have to have the task before you get into the rubric. But over time, I got the wisdom of Grant's advice. So that's a long way of saying the rubric, if it's well developed, should almost be a manifestation of the goals or the standards for which you're working. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, that's for the teacher. What does a good rubric do for the students? A good rubric, when explained and when coupled with examples, helps give them clarity about what's expected, what good work looks like, how their work will be judged or graded. And over time, and by the way, this is the value of having some common rubrics that span a couple of grades. Kids get to know the rubric such that they should become better able to self-assess their own work and peer assess, which is very powerful. Teachers don't have to grade every single activity or task. Let the kids look at each other's work against the rubric. That's developing self-assessment um, capabilities and metacognitive abilities. Uh, so those are the benefits of, of rubrics. And I, I'm long-winded, sorry. No, I want to I drop in one more, more point here. <clears throat> there are, categorically speaking, three broad kinds of rubrics being used in schools today, but two are prominent. Holistic rubrics, holistic, four, three, two, one with descriptors underneath that yield a single score. You know, okay, Jay, you got three out of four on my, my rubric or analytic rubrics of the sort that are featured on the screen. An analytic rubric breaks down a performance into particular traits or categories. So problem solving, reasoning and proof, communication, representation. And each of these is or can be evaluated independently, right? A student might be accurate in computation, but not um, be able to articulate their reasoning in a logical way, or vice versa. I'm a strong advocate for the use of analytic rubrics for one straightforward reason. If we want rubrics to inform, to provide feedback to both teachers and students, we need the specificity of an analytic rubric. Just telling a student he or she got three out of four is not feedback. That's a score or a, or a grade. But if we want to improve learning, not just measure it, feedback is needed and feedback has to be specific, which mm -hmm. lends itself therefore to an analytic form of the rubric. You can always collapse the scores on an analytic rubric if you need and want to have a holistic rating or a final grade. But I still argue that we should be looking at the, the traits, uh, the specific traits and give feedback on those to the student. Jay, one of the things I find interesting about the exemplars rubric, and I was using this rubric when I first started teaching almost 20 years ago. When I first started unpacking it, I was one of these math teachers early in my career. I just thought I was supposed to teach calculations. Yeah. Right? If a kid could run the algorithm and could get the right answer, I was a good math teacher. And I started unpacking this rubric, and I'm like, communication? Wait, what? representations okay yeah use of models and number lines and graphs and tips okay i kind of get that one use of use of uh connections and making connections like suddenly the expectations i had of myself and my students expanded because i was trying to recognize what what was happening in this rubric 
what I like about the exemplars rubric, which has largely been unchanged for 15 years because it's just held together very well, is that those criteria at the top come from NCTM. Right? Those are the, the process standards, they call it, that they've yep. been talking about since the 90s and remain the foundation of what NCTM says students should be able to do, problem solve and the rest. Um, so this rubric for me was was mind opening for me to kind of expand like, oh, okay. Yeah, I wish we had more time to talk about feedback because I think that's one of the the interesting separations between what I used to do and then as I got further in my career, I realized the power of never giving a kid a grade, only giving them feedback. I could keep grades for myself, but um, I, I, I want to jump into something called the yes buts. So teachers are hearing this, you know, educators hear this, and they're like, okay, yeah, but, and I know you have a couple of them that you like to address. So, so talk to us about those, please. Yeah, it's important that we include this before we, our time runs out. Um, the yes buts that I've heard regarding use of performance tasks fall into several buckets, and it's in many subjects, but let's focus on mathematics. One of them is I have too much content to cover, and these take time. I've tried to address that with a game analogy. Our job is to prepare students to be able to apply their learning in realistic situations. So the task is what we want to be teaching toward. Our job is not to cover the playbook play-by-play. Play. It's prepare for the game. Um, so that's part one. Another big yes but, however, is, oh, well, Jay, you don't understand. We've got, we've got tests in Vermont or in Alberta or in uh, Georgia. And we're being held accountable for scores on these tests, but they're mostly multiple choice. They don't use performance tests. So why can we or why should we use these, which take time? Can't we just do multiple choice tests and that'll be sufficient? And I have, I have a, a couple of re responses to that. Very common, yes, but we're being held accountable for this, not that. So why should we do that? Why can't we just do more of this? Um, there, there are two points to be had. The first of these I'll, I'll pose as a question. And some of your listeners or viewers know this. What is the most widely missed type of item on state or provincial mathematics standardized tests? And I'll answer it because I've done this research. This I just read your article today. And I saw the answer, but go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. The, the, the answer is, not the low level, do you know your math facts or can you do a one-step process like a long division? The most widely missed items are not depth of knowledge one, they're depth of knowledge three tasks or, or questions. They have multiple parts and they involve and require mathematical reasoning. People often, I found, get seduced by the fact that it's in a selected response multiple choice format Assume, therefore, it's a low-level question and that practicing uh, multiple-choice items will be the way of improving test performance. And I think it's a flawed assumption. Let me give you a quick example and a related analogy. Uh, if you're seeing the screen now, uh, on the screen is an uh, excerpt from a, a math item on a New York State a standardized uh, test. It was some years ago, but it's illustrative. And if you can read the item, basically there's a straw inside a rectangular box. Dimensions are given. And the, the question is, how long is the straw? Now, most of your viewers will recognize this as a Pythagorean theorem kind of uh, question, right? Um, but interestingly, this was the most widely missed item on the state math test for 10th grade that year. Fewer than 30% of all students got the same, got the correct answer, which by the way, was a multiple choice set of options. And so you ask yourself, well, why was that so widely missed since Pythagorean, Pythagorean theorem is widely taught? And great. I think the answer is noted uh, in the bullets. The problem doesn't say to the student, oh, remember Pythagorean, remember that? All it gives you is a problem. And secondly, it's multi, there's multiple steps and it requires some reasoning. I don't think this is a far transfer problem. 
But even a simple problem that's multi-step and requires some reasoning uh, revealed that kids who learned Pythagorean theorem in a rote way, they could have memorized the algorithm and they plugged in numbers to a single step problem, didn't know what to do when they encountered it. Um, so that's the example. Here's the analogy, and this is Grant Wiggins' lovely analogy. Grant liked to say, practicing the test format, i.e. multiple choice, to raise the test scores would be akin to practicing for your physical exam to become healthier, right? Don't mistake the measures and the format of the measures for the goals. To me, the best test prep in math or other subjects is teach for understanding and transfer, giving kids lots of experience applying their knowledge to messy problems and have them explain, show their work, justify their proof. That's the best test prep and that's the best instructional approach for improving math learning and understanding. Jay, I've watched schools year after year when they use performance assessments regularly with their students, everything gets better. Students who are, who are working with performance tasks regularly are reading for understanding because there, there is some, some language in there and there are a couple of steps. So they have to close read and, and develop that ability to read for understanding. There's mathematics involved. There's usually multiple skills. There's application. There's the recognition of, wait, oh, this is that moment to divide with fractions. Okay. And then there's the writing, the ability to write and, and justify their thinking. So everything gets better with the use of these performance tasks, I find, with students. Yeah, we unfortunately are, are at four o'clock and I get scolded when I go past my, my deadline. I want to uh, celebrate all of the books that you've written. Um, so I wanted to, to sort of make sure everyone's aware of the different books that you have written, um, Designing Authentic Performance Tasks. I have read uh, multiple times, Understanding by Design. I literally had to do a book study. This is true, Jay. I did a book study with uh, Dr. Brewer, with Ross Brewer, oh. uh, for about six months. He made he and I read it. And I up, went up to his house every week to just sort of unpack the book many, many years ago. So Very cool. uh, I know that book well. Um, so I just want to make sure everybody is out there uh, knows your books. Um, I I read this today. I was rereading some of the things you sent me. Why are we teaching our kids to be great problem solvers, right? What is it we need them to be able to do with their learning? And as I thought about that, <clears throat> there are significant problems in our world today that our students, the kids in our classrooms today are going to be responsible for solving. And it's only when they can collaborate together, when they can share their ideas and hear other people's idea, that ability to communicate, when they can be creative, think outside the box, think for themselves, um, and they can problem solve. It's a vital skill that students are going to need in order to solve these problems of the 21st century, climate change being one, the ability to feed 8 billion people, all of them. So what you're asking and encouraging the end goal for me is this ability to, to walk out into the world and be able to be prepared to solve any problem that we put in front of our students. So I, I want to celebrate your work and celebrate what you've uh, brought to education because I think it's such a, an incredible gift. Um, so thank you. My pleasure being with you and um, thanks for everyone for uh, tuning in. I do want to put a small plug in that Exemplars has written uh, over a thousand DOK3 performance tasks. Um, we have put them, every one of them, in front of students. We've uh, edited them based on their feedback. We've collected tens of thousands of pieces of student work that Jay described at a different level so that people can see what, what good work looks like and, and work with your students. How would you make this one better? All of our instructional tasks are differentiated with a click of a button. So if you have a group that needs a little more accessible or a group that's ready for something more challenging, the tasks look the same, but you can have multiple versions ready. Um, we have launch images for all of our tasks to do some notice of wonder. Um, and then we have plan preliminary planning sheets written for teachers because we engineer our tasks so they can be solved multiple ways. We want various strategies being used, and that takes a lot of practice on our part to figure out how do you write a task like that. 
And many teachers don't recognize the different ways to solve the different tasks. So we provide all of that for you. Um, let's see. There's our rubric. All right. So Brendan, I don't know if there's any lingering important questions that we want to get to in the last second, but. I, I think the most important question isn't really a question. It's um, being thankful. I'm sort of thankful for Jay McTie, your uh, life of work and writing and reading and research and uh, the passion around performance tasks. And I know that's near and dear to the heart of friends at Exemplars. And we just love to think about how we might be impacting teachers, we might be impacting students, and we might be uh, having an impact on schools everywhere on the globe with all of our friends. So thank you for coming today. Thank you, Jay and Jay. Really appreciate both of you. Indeed. Thank you, Jay, very, very much. It's an honor. All right. Pleasure being with you. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.